Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, comrades. Did you miss me? Well, as you can hear, I am almost okay. So it's time to get back to the regular rhythm of work. Which also means that patrons will be getting their next book part either later today or tomorrow. And that I'm on to translating the very newest Latvian KGB Research Center paper on smuggling in the USSR, which we shall use for a future episode. But that's in the future. Right now, let's turn back to Uncle Joe. See, last time we left Stalin in Vienna, where he worked on Marxism and the National Question article, which quite likely was written mostly by every other prominent Bolshevik of the time, and not Stalin himself. So, it is February 1913 now, and Stalin returns to Petersburg. And two things happen here. First off, he has written a Bolshevik proclamation, which he spreads around the capital. It's called Anniversary of Lensk Massacre. Quote, A year has passed since 500 of our comrades were shot on Lena For a peaceful economical protest in the 4th of April 1912, our brothers were shot by the order of the Russian Tsar, so that a handful of millionaires would feel safer. This shooting opened a new page in our history. The cup of patient enduring has run over. The dam of people's indignation has crashed. The workers' sea has started to become stormy. It has started to boil. And in unity, with almost half of a million large protests, the Russian workers have responded to the Lensk shooting. And they raised our old red banner high, and they repeated the three main demands of the Russian 1905 revolution once again. Eight-hour workday for the workers, confiscation of all the large landowner and czarist land for the peasants, and a democratic republic for all the peoples. End quote. This was also printed in Pravda. Pravda, by the way, also had its one-year anniversary at this time, and this would be the second thing that's happening. See, local Bolsheviks 
had secured police permission to hold a fundraising concert on the 23rd of February to commemorate this one year of newspaper Pravda. Yep. Apparently, Petersburg Bolsheviks were a bit different from um, the other kinds of revolutionaries, and they would do this kind of thing. Which is a bit strange, while everyone else is running around expropriating stuff and running underground presses and everything, they do fundraising parties. But okay, okay, I get it, it's it's Petersburg after all. And Stalin being on the, well, uh, let's just say, different end of the Bolshevik spectrum, was eager to attend and, you know, have some relaxing for one. But obviously... Obviously, he was worried that it wasn't safe. So he consulted our old pal Malinovsky. And I told you to remember that name in the last uh, episode about Stalin. And Malinovsky informed Stalin that, you know, he should go ahead but should be careful. At least that's what the official dry reports say that I've been reading, but in my own interpretation I think it would be more it would be more like, you know, everything's cool, comrade bro, and like I got this, we'll put some of your favorite drag on and <clears throat> totally no worries, comrade dude. Because Malinovsky's going to do some um crazy stuff here. And I wasn't joking about the drag, because Stalin arrived at the concert hall and he was instantly taken to a dressing room to put on a disguise. But, as he was changing, the police burst in and arrested him, for the seventh time this time. And although we have no reports on what was Stalin's disguise, I would like to imagine that it was, you know, drag, as he had used that to escape police previously. And the police was was sent here by Malinovsky, by the way. He had tipped them off. But uh, Stalin will find out about it only way, way later. And it was a little more than a year since this police spy had got Stalin on the Central Committee. And you know, you have to be a bit curious about the reasons for betrayal there. Those historians who believe that Stalin was a Secret Service Okhranka agent... Uh, also known as those historians who are misinformed and wrong, suggest that Malinovsky disposed of Stalin as a rival. Other, more reasonable theory is that Malinovsky, at this point, had calculated how able and dangerous Stalin really was. But that's stroking our, our good Caucasian's ego a bit. Sure, he's done a lot, but not yet in Petersburg. The very likeliest scenario was that Okhranka just demanded Malinovsky to throw someone under the bus, and Stalin was just readily available. So, they locked up Stalin really good this time. He was in extra hard police custody for four months. He was being interrogated and held in a small cell without visitors. At the end of those four months, in 2nd of July, they finally gave him a sentence. Exile in far northern Siberia, in Turuhansk region, Monastirsky village, for four years. A spoiler alert, he would not escape this time. But hey, looking back in hindsight, knowing what's going to happen in the world in the following years during his exile, what do you expect? Him actually trying to leave his middle of nowhere to be drafted into an army and sent to die in this largest mechanized industrial killing effort? 
that's a bit crazy, but um, we have to get there first, because, you know, at one point, they will try to get him in the army. Anyhow, Turkhansk region was chosen as the new exile point for Bolsheviks, because Tsarist penal ideology at the time was to concentrate the members of various opposition and revolutionary parties in different utterly inaccessible places. And to explain just how inaccessible this Tukhuransk is, it's in Krasnoyarsk Oblast. Krasnoyarsk is about 4,600 kilometers or 2,850 miles from Petersburg. Krasnoyarsk is where Stalin was taken by train. From there to Turuhansk, it's 1,474 kilometers more going north. That's about 960 miles. And that's, you know, direct distance by air. You have to note that there are no direct roads there either, and the only way to get there is by the river Yenisei, which by boat increases the distance to about uh, 1,300 miles or 2,100 kilometers in total from Krasnoyarsk. Oh, and there are no quality roads there to this day, by the way. But they do have this river port and an airport there. In modern day, about uh, about 4,500 people live there. Uh, back in the day, in Stalin's, uh, it was about 3,000 people. The temperature there is very continental. It goes from 35.5 Celsius, that's 95.9 Fahrenheit, in July, to minus 57 degrees Celsius, or minus 70.6 degrees Fahrenheit, in January. Monastirsky village, where Stalin was sent from this uh, other, like, larger central or vi- village of uh, uh, Turuhansk, is just a bit north from there. Welcome to northern Siberia, comrades. It'll take Stalin a month to get there, and while he's on the way, on the 20th of July, he's sent 120 francs by Lenin from Krakow for both an escape attempt and just surviving over there. Stalin was given a warm reception by the Bolshevik colony. Prison protocol required newcomers to report on what was happening in the world. Their report would then be carefully analyzed and discussed. But Stalin refused to play. Picking up the presents his fellow exiles had prepared for him, he made off to his room, observing that he had nothing to say. Whereas the Bolshevik party in these early years was notable for an unremitting bubble of ideological debate, Stalin at this time was distinguished by his silence. We have a second account of Stalin's arrival, by the way, which uh, makes him appear even more disagreeable. Vera Schweister, an old Bolshevik who served a term in the region, recalled that many exiles did not trust Comrade Koba, whom they regarded as an intriguer and provocateur. Quote, when Koba arrived at the Turuhansk region, we all decided to boycott him. He had a reputation as a confirmed careerist and intriguer, capable of any kind of anarchistic action. There was definite talk in party circles in Petrograd and Moscow about links between Stalin and the gendarmerie. Subsequently, he was able to win the confidence of some of the exiles. 
The explanation for this is probably that, that such old Bolsheviks as Petrovsky and Lev Kamenev were so pure of heart themselves that they could not suspect other comrades of treachery. Stalin's reception there and this exile had been organized by his one-time companion in exile, Yakov Sverdlov, also mentioned earlier. He also had been arrested recently once again. And Lenin had felt the loss of both Stalin and Sverdlov to be serious, and he set a rescue plan in motion, and, you know, they voted in the party about this rescue plan in the 27th of July. But sadly, well, sadly for Stalin at least, and for other Bolsheviks, Malinovsky was picked as a co-conspirator, and, of course, Malinovsky instantly informed the police about this, and the police started putting some plans in motion, making Stalin's life tougher, and the local cops in Turuhansk were seriously watching over him. So, this made Stalin, uh, had, this made Stalin run into a lot of trouble, Stalin had a lot of issues getting a job there, so what Stalin will be doing for, well, essentially years now, is that he will be just sending letters out to people, out to everyone, he's in such a terrible place now, in such northern Siberia, that he no longer can actually run all this Bolshevik business there, because his first priority is just surviving. Stalin just keeps sending out letters to people, asking for money and books and whatever help he can get while he's over there in the literal middle of nowhere. And I mean to literally everyone all the time. I will not be bothering you with all of these, uh, all these letters except one. As it's really interesting as he even sends a letter to Malinovsky, the guy who got him there, but he doesn't know that, in the end of November 1913. Uh, yeah, I will not be reading other letters here because this one's a long one, and sending letters is what he does for the most part. So, this letter to Malinovsky at the end of November 1913, which uh, explains his conditions there. Quote, <clears throat> Hello, friend. It is uneasy to write to you like this, but I have a dire need. It seems like I have never lived in such a miserable condition. I'm out of money, and I have some weird and suspicious cough related to the increasing colds, as it is minus 37 degrees Celsius now. In general, I feel sickly, and I have no reserves of neither bread, nor meat, nor kerosene. All my money went for buying everyday stuff and obtaining warmer clothes and shoes. It is hard here, without reserves, you know, and it's very expensive. Rye bread is 4 kopecks per pound. Kerosene is 15 kopecks. Meat, 18 kopecks, and sugar, 25 kopecks. I need milk. I need logs for burning, but money... There is no money, friend. I don't know how I'll manage to pull through the winter in this condition. I do not have rich relatives or acquaintances. I do not have anyone else to turn to, so I turn to you. Well, not only to you, but also to Petrovsky and Badayev. My request is in the fact that if the Social Democratic Party still has a fund for the repressed, then I would like to make 
a one-time payment from that one. You know, at least some 60 rubles. Please give my request to Chaidze and tell him to take it seriously. I ask him not only as my fellow Caucasian, but also as the chairman of the fraction. If there is no such fund anymore, then please, maybe you guys can figure out something together. I understand that you people, Bolsheviks, are busy in general, and specifically you never have time for nonsense, but god damn it, I don't have anyone to turn to. But I don't want to sutter here without even sending a single letter to you. Things need to be organized already today, and money needs to be sent through telegraph, because to wait any longer means to starve, and I am exhausted and ill already. Further on, I'm being written by Zinovyov that my articles about the national question will be published as a separate brochure. Do you know anything about this? The thing is, that if this is correct, that the articles need an ad additional chapter added to them, which I could do in a couple of days, if only... You would let me know, and after that, I hope that there might be some royalties associated with that. In this godforsaken middle of nowhere where there is only fish, money is very necessary and needed, like the air itself. I hope that in case of whatever, you'll stand in for me and help me out somehow. Am I really destined to rot here for four years? You're Yosef. Well, Malinovsky being a... Uh, an obvious Ochrank agent and traitor, poke the police again. So, in the 11th of March, 1914, after sending a letter to Malinovsky, sending a letter to Bolshevik representatives, to Petersburg, to friends, to literally everyone, to prevent any escape attempts, Stalin and this guy Svetlov, who organized his greetings and everything, are moved about 150 kilometers north, to an even smaller village, beyond the polar circle called Kureika. Kureika was a tiny settlement north of the Arctic Circle. And Stalin left uh, for it from Monasteryoskaya uh, un under some danger of yet another party court of, of, of focused around him. After he had left and he had moved there, it was discovered that he had removed the books of a recently deceased comrade, although it had been agreed that these should be used to start off a library about communistic issues. Another Bolshevik, Philip Zaharov, was sent to Kureika to demand an explanation from Stalin. And Stalin <clears throat> received him more or less as a Tsarist general would receive a common private who dared to enter his presence with a demand. Philip was outraged, as was literally everyone, and retained the impression of that conversation for the rest of his life, and uh, his unflattering opinion of Stalin never altered. Sverdlov was not overjoyed to start the second period of exile with Stalin as well, for he knew what to expect. Life would not be led according to the principle of share and share alike, and relations soon again grew strained in the little house that they occupied in this far north village. The strain and the difficulties really come through uh, through Sverdlov's letters. In March 1914, he wrote, quote, I am much worse off in this new place. Sharing a room is what does it. There are two of us, with me is an old acquaintance, the Georgian Jugashvili, whom I know from an earlier exile. He's a good fellow, but wants his own way too much in day-to-day -day life. I happen to like a certain amount of tidiness, 
and there are times when I get nervy, but never mind. Two months later, in another letter, however, he is much more harsh. Quote, I have a comrade with me here, but we know one another too well. The saddest thing about exile or prison is the way that a man's character comes out and reveals it all its pity side. Worst of all, the pity side of a person is all you see. There is no scope to display the big features. My comrade and I live in separate quarters now, and we seldom meet. And Sverdlov, uh, he paints a kind of a sad picture here. He and Stalin were the only exiles in a tiny settlement of literally fishermen. Yet, fired by that nerve-jangling irritation, which was kind of, you know, just living together, knowing each other, being these Bolsheviks, they apparently upset each other so much, and they hated each other so much uh, during this exile that they preferred not to meet. However, uh, they may have been driven by uh, by more than just, you know, irritation and not liking to live each, with, live with each other all the time. According to Boris Bajanov, who was one of the Stalin's private secretaries before... Uh, before defecting from the Soviet Union, the two men were also rivals. Vera Alexandrovna Delinskaya was an actress in the Moscow Arts Theatre, and she had become involved with some politically suspect associates of uh, Maxim Gorky, and had agreed to conceal some illegal literature for them. And the police were tipped off, uh, quite possibly by, again, our good old friend Malinovsky, who's just, you know, tipping off the police about literally everything. And the young woman was arrested and sent into exile. And since it was Bolshevik literature she had been caught with, she, as it was customary in this time, went to this Bolshevik center at Monastirskoye in the Stukharensk Oblast. And there she was, uh, according according to this Bajanov guy, courted by both Stalin and by Sverdlov. And, you know, whatever their merits in, in, in other areas, uh, Stalin was no longer the cute guy, which we saw in his earlier pictures, and Sverdlov was, was much kinder and warmer, and apparently by this point Sverdlov was also prettier by Stalin. And Vera Alexandrovna, this uh, famous actress, really kind of... Uh, you know, went with Sverdlov here. But now we get into some rumors, because, uh, and these are again just rumors, which I do have to mention here, as there are, there are, there are stories about the fact that Stalin apparently had uh, <clears throat> consoled himself uh, with a local woman by whom it seems that, you know, he had a child with. And this we know by a, uh, a story from Anton Tsiliga, a foreign communist who had spent some time in a Siberian labor camp, and um, he writes, quote, Learning that old Bolsheviks had lived in Krasnoyarsk and Yeniseysk, I did my best to find out about their lives there. In Yeniseysk, they had continued their activities, agitated among the population, issued illegal leaflets, possessed their own office for false passports and the preservation of their illegal archives. There were two factions among the Turuhansk Bolsheviks. 
one sat around Sverdlov and later Kamenev, which studied a good deal, read and discussed, actively prepared for the future, the other around Stalin, which chose the simpler, more pleasant life and drank a good deal waiting for better times. The whole Yeniseisk region remembers Stalin's drinking bouts. Stalin left another souvenir of his say in Turuhansk, a son by the wife of a peasant away at the front. In 1935, this young man was about 25 years old and still lived in the Yeniseisk region. He had, he had not desired to join his father in Moscow, preferring to work as a fisherman. And, a curious thing, the woman with whom Stalin had lived had nothing good to say of him. She had brought up her son to his like his father intensely. Now, obviously, such accounts about Stalin, you know, having weird sexual activities with random folks there are not uncommon. And this account is very inaccurate since it literally, literally ignores Stalin's move to Kureika. But this is not even the most kind of um, outrageous story. There is also another version where this uh, peasant girl with whom Stalin reportedly has had a son and whom he actually had raped while her husband was out in the front. Uh, yeah, there's a story where this girl did not have a husband and where she was just 13. You know, there are... Because later on when Stalin will get um, will get kind of throne of the pantheon of the gods, so to speak, by Khrushchev and by his followers. There will be a lot of destalinization stories, and one of them is propagated by our old friend and the Antonov of Sheyenko, which is also mentioned in both Western, both Western sources and some of my own Eastern European sources also like to use him, while it's completely wrong, and um, because Antonov of Sheyenko in his in his works, especially uh, the one where he mention, mentions this story in Stalin Without a Mask. Well, he's a weird anti-Stalinist falsificator against whom I stand as much uh, as, as I stand against those historians and those people who would like to absolve Stalin of everything, because really we have to be truthful here. And uh, he implies that Stalin had raped a 13-year-old girl. And another version uh, uh, has, has this 13-year-old girl also giving birth to two kids, one of them stillborn and the second one surviving. And of Seyenko writes, quote, On May 9, 1951, among the photographs that appeared in a local paper showing heroes of the Great Patriotic War was one of a major with slightly slanted Tungus eyes. But this detail hardly altered the resemblance between the Major and the Generalissimo. Many residents of the Turuhansk region knew of Stalin's behavior in exile. Later on, the story became well known in the Yeniseisk region, to which many Turuhansk residents moved in the post-war years. Stalin's illegitimate son said that his mother sometimes received money from Moscow. Soon after the war, the, the master sought to persuade the, the girl and her son to come to Moscow, but they wouldn't go. What they feared was not the long trip, but some short, swift blow in Moscow. Now, what speaks about this story of Antonov of Sheyenko 
this uh, this story about this another illegitimate son and Stalin being a pedophile and a rapist is the fact that uh, Ovshenko also declares that quote documents by this case were read by Serov in the Communist Party Central Committee meeting in 1964. He he notes that he knows this from documents from this uh, Communist Party Central Committee meeting. But this is clearly false and super confusing for anyone with even a cursory knowledge of Soviet history because Serov to whom we will certainly get to in future episodes, was removed from the office of the KGB director already in 1958, and by 1964 was long in retirement under complete surveillance himself, as he totally had fallen out of both power and favors. So the very idea that sometimes is shown in Western history books that Stalin raped someone there, uh, in 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 his in this exile of his, yeah, that was later on fabricated when uh, in the Soviet Union it was necessary to show that Stalin was literally three times more evil than he actually was, and that's you know hard to beat here. But let's just stay on the side of truth. All of this didn't really bother Stalin that much, as you know, at one point with all his letters you know, getting some money here and there from the people who actually did send him some via telegraph, Stalin kind of, you know, just accepted the fact that he would not be escaping again. And at one point, this turned out to be good for him. Again, he sort of spent some time enjoying his exile there as a sort of a vacation. Although life north of the Arctic Circle would have seemed a living death to most other Georgians, it would seem, as they're more used to warmer climates, uh, Stalin tolerated its isolation and bleakness. In later years, he will tell his daughter that it was only then that he acquired a feel for Russia. Unlike his fellow exiles, he did not devote himself to kind of self-improvement this time or like uh, more readings of communism. He spent as much time as he could outdoors and for the first time ever, we actually find him, you know, simply enjoying himself. He loved to fish in the Yenisei, uh, and in an interest that he shared with Trotsky, he also loved to hunt. Although, as uh, Trotsky will point out later, Trotsky always used a gun, while Stalin preferred traps. Uh, Stalin at this point even has a dog called Tikhon Stepanich, or just, or just Tishka, and he enjoyed uh, taking him hunting or simply, you know, talking to him. Quote, he used to keep me company during the long winter evenings. I would sit, reading or writing, and Tishka would run in, run in from the cold and lie down, pressed against my legs, growling as if trying to say something. I'd bend down, ruffle his ears and say something like this. Well, Tishka, are you frozen? Warm yourself now, boy. Warm yourself. Stalin never kept another dog or another pet for that matter, and uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, you you might look at this in a way that after a while, whatever Stalin loves and then loses, because he will lose this dog, obviously, that he starts to despise. Same as with his first wife, which he really loved, and maybe with this dog as well. As uh, later on, he, he diagnosed, you know, gratitude as, quote, a dog's disease. So maybe he had something going on there. This Kureik, it was a very tiny commercial fishing settlement and Stalin loved to fish in both summer and winter when he set the lines in the ice in the ho ice holes. 
In later years, he enjoyed telling stories, obviously fake ones, about his heroic fiction exploits, and he would boast that he was so good at discovering the feeding grounds that the locals credited him with supernatural powers. Stalin looked back on his stay in Koreik with ever-increasing warmth. He actually seemed to enjoy his situation. It was his only period of ordinary settled existence and the only time that he lived an outdoor life. It is to this that he would revert in kind of, you know, uh, with his drunken ramblings in later years, and um, he would just speak about his exploits later on, which we will definitely mention, but... Uh, and everyone would kind of agree to this, just in a very kind of weird, agreeable way. But yeah, it seems that this Kureka period is uh, is one where he kind of gets to boast about being the most macho, manliest man of them all. Success as a hunter apparently was, like, important to him, perhaps to show how well he had adopted to this culture and climate of the North while he was a southerner himself. However, we know that this was not entirely the case, because Stalin, again, uh, besides the letters which he sent to literally everyone asking for money, kept in touch with Aluliyevs, and uh, once he kind of sent a very weird, interesting letter to him, quote, We had an address to which to send parcels and letters. Stalin re recalled how happy he was when in his uh, lonely exile he unexpectedly found a note bearing, re bearing greetings from us in the pocket of his jacket. We had placed this note in the jacket when we sent him a winter suit. He often corresponded with father. From his letters, which we all read, we received an impression of that distant place with its cruel winters. He lived in the hut of an Ostyak fisherman in a tiny hamlet lost in the gloomy tundra. Here is a letter he once wrote to mother, quote, For Olga Yevgenievna, I am more than grateful to you, dear Olga Yevgenievna, for your kind and good sentiments towards me. I shall never forget the concern with which you have shown me. I await the time when my period of banishment is over and I can come to Petersburg to thank you and Sergei personally for everything. I, I still have two years to complete in all. I receive the parcel. Thank you. I ask only one thing. Do not spend money on me. You need money yourselves. I should be happy if you would send me from time to time postcards with views of nature and so forth. In this forsaken spot, nature is reduced to stark ugliness. In summer, the river and the winter, the snow, that is all there is of nature here, and I am driven by a stupid longing for the sight of some view, even if it's only on paper. My greetings to the boys and girls. Wish them all the very best from me. I live much as before. I feel all right. My health is good, as I have grown accustomed to conditions here. But nature is pretty fierce. Three weeks ago we had 45 degrees of frost. Until I write again, respectfully yours, Joseph. When Stalin's sister-in-law published her memoirs in 1948, uh, she, she was jailed by Stalin for doing so. It was this letter that did the damage. It portrayed him in an appropriate light for that time. It was kind of, you know, little sorry for himself and we could have none of that. For all his, like, open declarations of drunken love for this frozen north, white expanses and everything, it's kind of clearly not enough. Um, and uh, a lot of authors 
both Eastern and Western here note that, you know, probably he really did miss George and the Southern climate. And I can believe that. And this letter is also kind of uh, believed to be really trustworthy, and Aluliyevs are seen as a trustworthy source of information. So maybe this is some of this uh, poetic side of uh, Stalin showing, showing itself once again. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Aluliyevs also kind of um, may maintained kind of this uh, tenuous, strenuous uh, relationship and correspondence between Stalin and Lenin as he's not really able to correspond directly at this point. Stalin finished his essay on the national question in Siberia as he, you know, uh, was un understood that he needed to write these final chapters and he sent the manuscript to Aluliyevs for transmission to Lenin. It was probably in response that Lenin wrote one of those letters that official biographies prefer to forget, which have only kind of resurfaced in later years, in modern times. In later years, it was very important to Stalin that he should feature as Lenin's closest associate prior to becoming the Lenin of today and his own, like, uh, great image of, you know, continuing this and becoming center of this new cult of personality. And it was embarrassing to have to admit that as late as 1915, Lenin had actually forgotten what his <clears throat> wonderful Georgian was called. Twice he wrote as asking associates for help in quieting of Zinoviov, quote, Do you remember Koba's last name? And of another comrade, big request, find out the last name of Koba, Yosif something something, I've forgotten. It is very important. So yeah. Lenin at this time, you know, in these four years during World War One, had um, had forgotten about him. But Stalin will make a splendid and a brilliant comeback, of course. But now we do get to the Great War now. And you know what? <laughs> if I was to be extra cynical, which I am, you know, uh, you could technically argue that... Uh, you know what? Tsarist argument, Tsarist government actually did the Bolsheviks a huge, huge help by exiling all these leaders away to Siberia when they did it. Therefore, you know, they weren't killed in the war. As, you know, um, just a short lesson here because the second time I go through this, I probably should speak about World War One as, uh, as I don't know, I think those series made by Dan Carlin are behind a paywall now. So just, um, you know, 
uh, Rush entered the fight very early. It was basically Russia's uh, Russia's threats to help the, the the Serbians. But you should probably seek out like I don't know history of the Great War or other specific specific World War One podcast. But basically, Rush entered the fight very early, much too early for its own good. Basically, they advanced rapidly into East Prussia in August 1914, even before their armies had properly mobilized. And they kind of, um, kind of <clears throat> came into assistance to their French ally, and and they were kind of pressed into, into an attack, uh, while the Germans were basically advancing to Paris. And after advancing further into enemy territory, then you know any Russian unit would penetrate until like the end of World War Two, which again we shall devote many many episodes to while World War One gets skimmed over. Because you should really go and check out uh, History of the Great War, another great shows about that. Uh, they were basically advancing further on in German territory until until Russian forces under General Samsonov kind of finally got their defeat in the Battle of Tannenberg. But they sort of succeeded in this battle uh, in saving Paris and you know producing the so-called miracle of the Marne. They helped out their Western allies. And although the Russians continued to take terrible losses over all these years and had to retreat before the Germans, losing much of Poland in the process, the war record of the Imperial Army was was not the the mitigated disaster it was you know it, it has sometimes been made out to be. Unlike uh, unlike the Red Army in nineteen forty one, uh, they they never broke before the Germans. And they always outfought the Austrians on their southwestern front. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, a Russian general, Brusilov, who evolved tactics that restored the advantage to the attacker in trench warfare. While, ironically enough, the Russian armies may well have been poised for a series of major victories the moment the revolution broke out. They, they were ready to advance at that point. And, you know what? The war in Russia by this point before that, was surprisingly popular to begin with when it started. Tsar Nicholas was hailed by crowds who cheered him as, as he had never been cheered before, especially since, you know, he literally massacred his own people. And, you know, he is a murderer after all. But he was cheered, and for a moment, the country, for all its kind of, you know, weird political divisions and its hostility to the autocracy and everything, yeah, for a moment there in 1914, they seem to stand like curiously united behind the Tsar and behind this government as it waved off its young men off to this grinding, killing fields of Europe. In the summer of 1914, and this is, this is very important to note, the only political party opposed to war was Lenin's, and that is why Lenin's party managed to survive the war in exile. The Bolshevik deputies in the Duma had been arrested and they were all sent off to Siberia for voting against the granting of war credits and representing Lenin's view that a German victory was desirable as that would bring on the revolution. At the trial, their leader Kamenev had attempted to extricate himself and his colleagues by denying that they had directly supported Lenin's calls for defeat. Lenin, obviously, as we know from our Lenin series, was very arrogant and obviously was not pleased to learn of this behavior and conveyed the displeasure to the Bolsheviks in Turukhansk, thereby giving us a final glimpse of Stalin in exile as a political figure. 
1915, a special meeting was convened to tell Kamenev how wrong he had been. Stalin came in from Kureika to attend it even. According to his official biography, written later on in later years, he followed the Leninist line and stigmatized the behavior of Kamenev and his co colleagues. The truth, by the way, is uh, way more complicated as it always is when we have to discuss Stalin in any detail, especially with his political views. The chief topic of the meeting was Kamenev's behavior, which Stalin proved unwilling to condemn, by the way. Because Stalin, even though he was, uh, he was very kind of, uh, paranoid in later years, well, properly paranoid, but Stalin, after all, was a criminal himself and a professional criminal of that. And Stalin, as usual, being this criminal authority, preferred to remain silent which uh, kind of took off most of the edge of Kamenev's issue. And even though Stalin was instructed to join Svetlov in drawing up a resolution from the exile, as you know, all the Bolsheviks are in exile, surviving the war, while everyone who's not a Bolshevik is cheering for the war and being killed by German machine guns on the front lines of the war, uh, he went like uh, straight back to Koreika as soon as the meeting ended, about the situation and never even took further part in, you know, uh, kind of condemning Kamenev for his not hardline and no war line enough. And this, this introduces us to another important characteristic of Stalin. This is Stalin's interesting capacity for literally sitting on the fence and doing nothing sometimes when it's best and when he, when he needs it to advance his own political agenda. Because why antagonize a senior Bolshevik such as Kamenev for no purpose? And this sense of restraint would prove very helpful to Stalin. Like his silence, it distinguished him in a party of com completely ideological, doctrinaire ideologicals, each one ready to press on his case with an urgency, uh, which will also later kind of uh, make sure that the other p communist leaders would want to push for a um, world revolution. While Stalin, well, Stalin wanted to concentrate power, get in power, and run this whole damn country and this whole thing, which is very interesting. Stalin never insisted that his opinions must be heard and believed in a waiting game, and he won at the end with his, this waiting game. Stalin <laughs> might have refrained from criticizing Kamenev in 1915 here, but he shot him in 1936 just the same because he didn't care. He just remembered, he waited, hey, and in the end it was Kamenev who got bullet in the head, and Stalin was the one who got to put this bullet in the head by being following stricter, stricter line. But we'll get mass shootings, don't worry. And although by 1916, the Imperial armies had succeeded in stabilizing their northwestern front and were enjoying considerable success against the Austrian armies in the southwest, Russia at this point uh, really had been paying for, for this relative success. By the end of the year, the 15th million was being called to the colors and the government could like literally no longer uh, afford to maintain able-bodied political prisoners. The exiles of Turkhansk were ordered to muster in Monastirskoye where they would finally uh, make up make up a draft that was to report to the depot in Krasnoyarsk again all those 
insane amount of miles away. The Bolsheviks had been looking askance at Stalin for some time, above all because he lacked party spirit and had withdrawn from the fold to keep exclusive company with a Bolshevik named Maslenikov. Also remember that name. The comrades hoped that the prospect of military service would bring the true two renegades back to the group. However, it did nothing of that sort. It just, you know, Stalin is smart, unlike most other people at the time, it seems. When Stalin arrived back in Monastirskoy, he stayed with Maslenikov and avoided all the other exiles, including Svetlov and Goloshekin, his colleagues on the Russian bureau. He remained as hostile as ever. He doesn't speak with anyone. He continues to be kind of brooding and displays implacable hostility towards Svetlov. The latter was the first Bolshevik, by the way, to appreciate the stony temper of Stalin's character. And it was a pity that he died young in 1919, since basically he was the only member of leadership capable of seeing through and curbing Stalin before it was too late. But yeah, Sverdlov, Kamenev, everyone dies, Stalin survives. That's, that's how the world goes round. That's how Stalin functions. Stalin's account of the journey to the Krasnoyarsk recruiting center suggests it was spent, by the way, in carefully camouflaged political discussion. Quote, during the breaks in the journey, they made arrangements to meet their friends, but in order not to rouse the suspicions of the authorities, they organized drinking parties. It was assumed the army recruits were having a final fling with their companions before induction. Stalin, Stalin has left us, by the way, a gorgeous piece of grain spirit rationalization. Of course, the Bolsheviks sent route to be turned into cannon fodder and, you know, meat for the machine guns did not want to take a drink. They were the only ones against the war. They needed a cover for their discussions and the authorities would have grown suspicious had they not re used real vodka for their so-called drinking bouts. In December 1916, the Bolshevik contingent arrived in Krasnoyarsk where Stalin was rejected for military service because, guess what? The weakness of his left arm, which is another, you know, thing from the past, which we learned about when we spoke about his childhood. There is really no record of his reaction over there. Uh, he continues to send on just letters about how he's rejected from the military, uh, but we know that he was rejected because of his arm, but Stalin uh, does, does not really like to speak about him failing the medical. But, you know, what we do know is that Stalin never took kindly to being rejected in any way or form. First, the thirst for his military recognition that, in the end, well, will kind of come together with him being promoted to the rank of Generalissimo, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there are theories, these are mostly postulated by Western authors, but they're important enough to mention, that, you know, this, this might, this whole, you know, desire for military glory might have come from this rejection there. As, as like I said, Stalin's official biography makes no mention of his failing, failing a medical test. Uh, the authorities, apparently, according to his official biography, quote, rejected him because he was too dangerous. Uh, the Aluliev memoirs, from which we take most information, which are believable, are less tactful. They suggest that, quote, traces of his old injury remained, and it was that, this which gave the officials of Krasnoyarsk the, the excuse to reject him. Since his term of exile was nearly up, and as he was spent like all this time from 1913 here, he was ordered 
he was ordered to reside in Achinsk as the authorities decided that it was pointless to send him like all this long way back to Kureik. There, he was joined by Kamenev and his wife, who's, was, who was Trotsky's sister at this point. Another exile, Ah Bakailov, remembered him there. His recollections failed to confirm Stalin's subsequent contention that he devoted himself to the dissemination of revolutionary propaganda among troops on the way to front, because that's what Stalin will write about himself during his period. In fact, he had some difficulty recalling Stalin's actions at all, and uh, those again fall in direct uh, contention with official Stalin biographies. Quote, There was nothing striking or noteworthy about Stalin's appearance or his conversation. Thick set, of medium height, with a swarthy face, pitted with smallpox. A drooping moustache, thick hair, narrow forehead, and rather short legs. He produced the impression of a man of poor intellectual abilities. His small eyes, hidden under bushy eyebrows, were dull and deprived of the friendly, humorous expression which forms such a prominent feature of his flattering post-revolutionary portraits. His Russian was very poor. He spoke haltingly, with a strong Georgian accent. His speech was dull and dry, and entirely devoid of any color of witticism. In this respect, the contrast with Kamenev, a brilliant speaker and an accomplished conversationalist, was striking. The chat with Kamenev was a real intellectual delight, and we spent hours at the customary Russian tea table discussing international and Russian problems, or exchanging revolutionary reminiscences. Stalin used to remain taciturn and morose, placidly smoking his pipe. I remember how the poisonous smoke irritated Olga Davidovna, Kamenev's wife. She sneezed, coughed, groaned, implored Stalin to stop smoking, but he never paid any attention to her. Stalin's other contributions to the conversation were usually dismissed by Kimenev with a brief, almost contemptuous remark. It was evident that he thought his reasonings unworthy of serious consideration. But hey, guess who survived at the end and who got shot? Anyhow... Uh, the date of these conversations be between uh, between Kamenev uh, and Baikalov are interesting because the date of these conversations are guess what February 1917 and their subject of these discussions of what's going on and why these discussions are important are the prospects of an imminent revolution. Stalin nodded in silent agreement when Kamenev predicted that the Germans would win the war and that the defeat would bring about the bourgeoisie revolution in Russia. This, according to Marx, by the way, uh, Marx himself, was ne the necessary preliminary to the eventual socialist revolution which might be expected in the neighborhood of 1937. About this time in February 1917, uh, Lenin in Zurich also told his wife to explore the possibility of establishing a small printing business to support them, since, quote, it was not likely that they would live to see a revolution in Russia. Boy, how things will change, starting from February and ending with the October. So, comrades, this is where I'll end my episode, where we have finally, finally moved to uh, move through Stalin's life to the point where we have reached the actual revolutions happening from the Stalin's point of view. So next Stalin episode will be about kind of a small recap about where Stalin has gone and where he has like went from his birth to this point. And of course we will talk all about Stalin's role in the great revolutions of 1917 and what he did afterwards. 
Uh, next episode, however, will be about this brand new paper from the KGB Research Center about, um, about how smuggling was organized in the Soviet Union. And yeah, with this episode, together with this episode, I also plan on releasing the book part, the next book part of Polyutkovskaya's A Russian Diary, which will happen either later today or tomorrow. And it will be posted uh, in Patreon together with uh, with all the other book chapters together in one post, so that uh, so that everyone can can grab them. As I've gotten quite a, quite some complaints about this, but yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode despite my voice, as it was an important one. And до свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.